Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charmed Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter six, hiding in the tower. In the first year or so after the divorce, we lived with my mom. She was going through a bit of an identity crisis, out late singing in piano bars and dating. My brother, sister, and I kept the house clean, taking care of ourselves. There was very little food in the apartment. We were able to keep pet mice and my pet rat, Chim Chim, hidden and undetected in our room for months. That is, until she came home from work unexpectedly, in the middle of the day, catching us while we sat on the steps playing with them. She made us give them to our neighbor as food for his pet boa constrictor. From that day forward, I hated snakes and wasn't too fond of her either. During one of our weekend visits with dad, he walked in on my sister serving us chicken that was still raw. He dumped the chicken and took us out to eat. He didn't know that we had stolen bread and some other food from a convenience store nearby. I'm pretty sure the owner knew, but he didn't stop us. I thank God for him whenever I think about those days. I was thin, Short, Asian kid with a loaf of bread tucked under my shirt. Yeah, he knew. In third grade, Dad secretly remarried and took custody of us. I wish I could say life got easier. It didn't. My sister moved back with my mom, leaving my brother and me with Dad. My stepmother was far from friendly. Even worse, when Dad wasn't around. She loved telling me how my mom didn't love me and didn't care about me. She refused to buy me new clothes. Instead, I had to wear hand-me-downs for my stepsister. Stepmonster, as I called her, would threaten me constantly. I was not allowed to tell my dad what was happening. She said I would be sent away if I did. During the holidays, her parents were visiting from out of town when I learned she had the same rule about crying as my mom and grandparents. I said or did something that earned a face slap hard enough to turn my cheek red and bring tears to my eyes. She threatened if I didn't stop the tears and make the handprint on my face go away, I would go to bed hungry. She sent me to the bathroom to wash my face with cold water, demanding I stop crying. I did as I was told, and went downstairs for dinner when called. My long hair hid my face as I sat quietly and ate dinner, making no eye contact, staring down at the lima beans I loathed on my plate. I was disgusted at her cruelty and shocked that no one noticed how withdrawn or sad I looked, not even my dad. Inside, I was crumbling. I was not allowed to excel at anything, nor was I allowed to do anything 
unless my stepsister did it. Unfortunately, I excelled at gymnastics, dance, baton, and playing instruments. The dance school we attended promoted me to the talent unit team. Stepmonster refused to let me participate unless my stepsister was able to do it too. Thankfully, the school allowed it, as I enjoyed the reprieve from the volatility at home. Being promoted to the talent unit felt good and meant someone liked something I did. It felt great to be rewarded and accepted by adults for once. Gymnastics and dance gave me an outlet for my suppressed emotions. Yet, the message to stay quiet, invisible, and unassuming continued. Believing that I was worthless became ingrained in me. Playing instruments was the only creative emotional outlet accepted in our home. My stepsister had a piano, so I got to learn how to play, although I wasn't allowed to practice or excel at it. I chose to play violin in music class at school. Of course, my stepsister wanted to play that too, so I eventually gave it up for the cello. I hated the cello. It was too big, and I didn't like the feel of it. I wanted a guitar, but it was pointless to ask for one since I couldn't make noise or enjoy anything. Eventually, I just sang when I was alone and rehearsed melodies in my head. I began to see my mind as a safe place, calling it my attic, thinking of it as a tower in a castle that imprisoned me, yet kept me safe from attack. It became the only place safe from the threat of having someone steal my creativity, talents, and dreams. As the tension between me and the stepmonster grew, I yearned to live with my sister and mom. My sister convinced me to run away from home, telling me that mom would pick me up. So one day, I filled my backpack and took it to school. Before the dismissal bell rang, the principal's office summoned me, where the stepmonster was waiting. According to her, my mom's lawyer called to inform them that I was planning to run away, but she didn't want me. Stepmonster angrily told me how mom chose to give up custody of us since we were in the way of her singing career. Every chance she got, she reminded me that my mom never wanted me. She relayed a story about mom's pregnancy with me. She blatantly told me, at eight months pregnant, mom attempted an abortion of sorts. Stepmonster said that mom set her dress on fire and stood under a scalding hot shower, pointed right on her stomach, all efforts to get rid of me before I was born. While those attempts didn't work, her mental stability came into question. Stepmonster wanted me to know how lucky I was, that she was willing to allow me to live with her and my dad. After the attempted runaway, I didn't see my mom again for months. It wasn't until dad and the stepmonster separated that I saw her again. I remained quiet around her, avoiding any eye contact, afraid I'd burst into tears. Some moments in childhood were memorable and heartwarming. In fifth grade, a group of latchkey kids from our neighborhood were home for the summer. We were left to our own devices during the day while our parents were at work. 
we decided to go to the local convenience store about a mile or two from our street one day. There were about seven or eight of us who made the trek to get candy from the store. On the way, I noticed a dead cat on the sidewalk. Immediately, I was struck by how sad it would be to die without anyone noticing. Being the pack leader, I sent some of the kids back to our houses to get a wagon, explaining we had a duty to bury this cat. Some of us stayed to guard the dead cat I named Crystal. I announced we would have a funeral for her and bury her properly. We gathered dandelions to hold during our funeral procession while we waited for the wagon. After we loaded Crystal into the wagon, we went to the store to get our candy. With Crystal in tow, not thinking anything of the sight we must have been. Imagine a group of elementary kids lined up single file behind a red wagon, holding dandelions, heads bowed, in silence and reverence. Once home, we found a spot to bury her, behind the planter beds in our front yard, right outside our living room window. As the self-appointed minister, I led some prayers as the rest of the kids bowed their heads and said their amens. I made up a story of how she was sad, alone, and left for dead on the sidewalk. I asked God to take her to heaven and that she rest in peace. We dug a hole about a foot deep. We had no idea what we were doing. We wrapped Crystal in a trash bag, put her in the hole, covered her with dirt, and left the dandelions. As fate would have it, our family was leaving for vacation to Hawaii for a week. After the burial, none of us thought about it again until we returned from vacation. Saturday, we resumed the weekly chores, including yard work. My dad mowed the lawn and began trimming the edges. He grumbled about something smelling like it died. My brother and I were both in on the smell and knew what he was referring to. He found the source of the smell and told us to go into the house. Once he unearthed the cat, he was furious. My brother and I huddled together, whispering about getting in trouble when my dad told us to take the dog for a walk. We overheard him telling my stepmom that the troubled kid across the street, a teenage girl none of us talked to, had buried a dead cat in our yard. Immediately, my brother and I ran to the park with the dog. We knew the animal control was coming to pick up the cat, but what scared us was how angry my dad was. We decided not to tell the truth about the cat and hoped none of the other kids would squeal to their parents. After alerting the neighborhood kids, we made a deal that none of us would tell the truth about the dead cat. For years, dad would tell that story of how angry he was at the damn troubled kid across the street. One night, around the kitchen table, when I turned 18, I couldn't take it anymore. I confessed the truth and couldn't help but laugh at the shock on Dad's face. He was laughing too, but then questioned how we could let him tell that story all those years and not tell the truth. I told him I was an adult now and knew I couldn't get beat for it. So why not set the record straight? It was the first of many confessions to come. It wasn't unusual for me to bring home stray dogs I'd find on the way home from school. They wouldn't let us have a dog, so I would do my best to bring it home 
anytime I saw a lost dog. Blackie was a cute poodle mix that happily followed me home. We wanted to keep him so bad, but it was a stray, and Dad wouldn't have it. Later, after animal control came for Blackie, Dad conceded and bought a cockapoo we named Toby. Toby was instantly my best friend. I told him all my fears, worries, read books to him, and cuddled him. He was the only affection I had at home. Things were becoming volatile between my stepmonster and dad. Toby kept me calm. When they fought, I was always in the garage with him, hanging out in his bed. Sometimes I would carry whole conversations on with Toby. At times, I swear he understood. His eyes would acknowledge that he was listening. He would agree with me when I told him how scared I was. Anytime I needed reassurance, he would climb on my lap or lick me. He was the only living being at the time I could relate to and felt safe with. Animals are reliant on humans to care for them. They don't have a choice. They're often helpless victims of abuse too. Like me, they're sensitive to energy and intentions that are unspoken. Sensitives always feel better with an animal because their energy is pure. In a world where I felt unloved, Toby made sure I felt loved. I believe God sends animals to us as teachers of how to love unconditionally. They teach us about natural connection, living in the moment, telepathy, and intuition. Toby was my furry angel. Somehow I learned to deal with the circumstances life had thrown my way. It had become somewhat bearable. I was finding things I liked doing and was good at, like skating. As the arguments between dad and his wife escalated, my brother and I made up code words to replace the word divorce, secretly hoping it was happening. Then finally it happened, ushering in even more changes. Just as I began seventh grade, they separated and began divorce proceedings. Unfortunately, the stepmonster was having an affair with my dad's best friend, a man they worked with. Dad needed a new start, far from the betrayal he experienced. So dad, my brother, Toby and I moved to the Seattle area, leaving behind everything we knew including the shaky relationship and visits with mom. Chapter 7, Finding My Spirit Animal In junior high, I had a fascination with everything horse-related. Our quasi-grandparents, who were family friends, had Shetland ponies they let us ride as a small kid. As a result, I always wanted to ride. I even wrote stories about horses. As a Sagittarius and Chinese horse, it's no surprise I was attracted to the strength, courage, power, and freedom embodied by horses. Once my dad received his divorce settlement, he bought my brother a dirt bike, and I was given horseback riding lessons. I was in my element when I was finally able to learn how to ride English and jump. At the barn, I felt in tune with the horses. My instructor said I was a natural. Being with horses made me feel at ease, peaceful, and connected to God. 
I could forget everything going on at home or school while I spent time at the barn. It was the beginning of healing for me. It gave me a sense of self, connection, and acceptance I hadn't felt before. I bonded instantly with one horse in particular, a retired racehorse named Royale. He was for sale, although I had no hopes of buying him. He had been abused and was afraid of everyone but me. Anytime I came to the barn, Royale lit up, calling out, excited to see me. I could feel all his fears, knowing what he needed and how to treat him. The barn owners were happy to let me take care of him. He and I would communicate telepathically. When I rode him, I would think of what I wanted to do, and he would do it. I would think, turn left, and he'd turn left, or think, halt, and he would stop. He taught me so much about my psychic gifts, my ability to sense, and how to be in sync when I relaxed. For the first time in my life, I didn't feel awkward about having psychic gifts. I believed that with animals, I could secretly use my gifts to communicate. It helped me, and I like to think it helped them too. Horses made me feel accepted, like I was good at something. I was excelling at riding, and the horses trusted me. I was working for my lessons and didn't even think that I would lose the ability to ride. The barn was 40 minutes from home, but Dad was dating a woman near the stables at the time, so it wasn't out of his way to take me. I spent every weekend at the barn, leaving Toby home alone, locked in the garage. He began tearing things up while we were gone. Finally, Dad decided he needed more attention, so he gave Toby to his girlfriend without asking me. Toby wasn't even with them for a month before he ran away from home. I was furious. I made up a story in my head that he was coming to find me. I knew something terrible had happened to him, knowing I would never see him again. It was easier to believe he was on his way home. Eventually, I added details to the story that he encountered a deer and got trampled. I didn't want to think of him getting hit by a car. I had an active imagination, which served me well getting through life. Toby was gone. It was like he didn't matter. But he was my family and my friend. I was grieving and depressed. Not only that, Dad had broken up with his girlfriend, so trips to the barn were no longer convenient. I had to quit. I lost my joy and everything I loved in a matter of months. I constantly journaled, writing poems, songs, and all my dark thoughts. I was lonely again and began to believe that everything I loved would be taken away. Somehow, I had to learn not to love or need love. I felt an all-too-familiar feeling like I had no control over anything. So I created a little secret hiding spot in my closet. There I kept my journals, poetry, and a blanket. Anytime I got sad, I hid in there with my bed lamp and wrote. It was the only place 
I could shed tears and let myself express my feelings. Mom was living her life in California while I was in rainy Seattle. Sometimes I fantasized about how she would finally love and accept me. I thought that day arrived when she asked my brother and me to move in with her and her new husband. My brother jumped at the chance. Eventually, I agreed with the promise of a horse. I hadn't seen her for a couple of years, so the first greeting at the airport should have been great. The first thing she said while giving me a half-ass hug was, wow, you've gained weight. Don't you look healthy? I'd given up gymnastics due to back problems and my newly formed boobs. At that point, my body was changing, as was everything else. That one comment started a cycle of anorexia and bulimia that lasted well into my 20s. When I was around her in a group, it was super confusing. She talked about me like she cared, but her treatment was different. She was heavily involved in her church. I remember one day, while she lit into me over something, the phone rang. She answered and went from screaming at me to talking sweetly. As soon as her call finished, she went right back to screaming. I was shocked as thoughts raced through my head. You liar. You are full of shit. You hypocrite. My head was spinning, my emotions were flying, and all I wanted to do was get away from her. When I arrived, Mom set me up with her friend, a horse owner, with a horse named Crystal. I got to ride a few times, but the promise of my own horse never materialized. Instead, she had bought me a beautiful rose-colored comforter for my room. It was one of the first pretty things I received as a gift. Although I had high hopes for a happy life, those hopes came crashing down quickly. Attending church on Sunday was a must for our family. Mom sang one morning while talking about excerpts in a book she wrote about her Christian journey. She stood in front of the whole church, telling them how happy she was now that I was living with her. Then she told a story about an attempted suicide in November 1966. Quickly doing the math in my head, I froze. I was born in December 1966, which meant the stories that the stepmonster told me were true. Thoughts raced through my mind. She didn't love me. She never wanted me. She wanted me dead. I bolted out of the church toward home as quickly as my feet dressed in one-inch heels would carry me. I called my dad and asked if I could move back with him. Mom was furious that I left the church. She gave me no explanation about why she chose to share that story before ever having a conversation with me about it. How could the God I knew condone this? How could my mother know the God I knew and act like this? I was devastated, angry at God, and disgusted with so-called Christianity. Within days, I was on a plane back to Seattle. I asked if I could take the comforter she bought as my birthday gift. She said, no. I wouldn't get that comforter back for over 30 years, and only after 
she had gifted it to my niece. When I received it as a hand-me-down, it was worn, faded, and falling apart. I have it to this day as a reminder of everything I've come through. Receiving gifts became something I dreaded because of that. I believed gifts had strings attached, that gifts were a tool to hurt me. It took a couple of decades to accept gifts from others without questioning the intent. Once at home in Seattle, I immersed myself in my studies, books, and boys. I was becoming self-conscious about my body. Without gymnastics, I needed to find a way to stay thin. Depression made me lose my appetite and set the tone for destructive habits of not eating. With mom's comments about my weight, I began to see myself as fat. I was a tiny frame girl, only weighing around 100 pounds, but I saw fat every time I looked in the mirror. I hated my body and how I looked. I wanted to be small, with no boobs and no hips. I had this image in my head that if my body were perfect, maybe my mom would finally love me, accept me, and approve of me. Boys seemed to like my appearance, but I didn't see it when I looked in the mirror. The skinnier I got, the more I hid my body from everyone by wearing baggy clothes. If I had to get undressed in the locker room, I waited until everyone was busy and snuck into a bathroom stall to change. Anorexia and bulimia made me feel in control of something. It seemed like everything in my life was controlled by everyone else. I could quietly starve myself for days on end and feel like I had some personal power. It was a personal triumph in some ways, and in other ways, it made me feel lighter, like I was less weighted. Hiding an eating disorder wasn't that hard. Dad was barely home, so when he was around, I ate in front of him. After the dishes were done, I ran to the bathroom, turned on the shower, and stuck my finger down my throat. High school was overwhelming on every level, but I found ways to make it work. I hated the cliques, but carved out a small group of friends a grade above mine. We all had friends in cliques, but we weren't in one. Drinking on weekends and smoking pot became my new way to cope with life. I quickly learned that when I was higher drunk, I didn't feel the same. It didn't feel great, but I didn't hurt as badly. Numbing my pain by self-medicating, not eating, or purging food became my coping mechanisms. At 16, life was bearable, but not happy. I had a steady boyfriend I loved, and I thought he loved me too. He did stupid things I forgave, like breaking up with me right before a holiday so he didn't have to buy me a present, and getting back together with me after. I coped with dysfunction. It was familiar to my upbringing. I felt like I could deal with things easier since at least he loved me, until he didn't. He broke up with me when he met another girl. Without warning, I was alone, rejected, and abandoned. It was too much to handle. I broke. I had two bottles of pain pills for my doctor for back pain I had never taken. No one was there for me to talk to, so I did what I learned from my mother. I wrote a suicide note and swallowed both bottles of pills. 
Turning off my bedroom lamp, I closed my eyes, cried, and fell asleep. I prayed for forgiveness and asked to go to heaven. I felt my body get farther and farther away. I felt light. I passed through a tunnel of light, thinking, I am finally free. Just as I was ready to step out of the tunnel, I heard a voice say, You have to go back. You can't leave yet. My eyes popped open. Barely conscious, I somehow made it to the bathroom. Six hours had passed since I swallowed the pills, and here I was in the bathroom, throwing up whole pills. They weren't even the slightest digested. I was quietly sobbing as I made my way back to my room. In a daze, I was shocked by an angry father. He was holding my note and yelling, What did you do? Sobbing, I told him I had thrown the pills up, but he wasn't satisfied. The next thing I know, he's on the phone with Poison Control, furiously writing notes. They told him to make me drink a gallon of milk. I hated milk, and he expected me to drink the whole gallon. I quietly cried and did as I was told. He finally let me go to my room. Before I made it to my room, I was running for the toilet to throw up the entire gallon of milk. Talking and processing problems wasn't something we ever did. But ironically, the next afternoon, an after-school special was playing on television about a kid who tried to commit suicide. Dad was listening to it while he was in the kitchen. He came in, looked at the TV, and said, why would he want to do something stupid like that? I quickly shut off the television, ran to my room, closed the door, and hid in my closet. Then, shutting out the world, I wrote about the darkness that enveloped my soul. Somehow, I made it through those years living with my dad. He was preoccupied with his life, dating, and working. He did the best he could, but I knew he wasn't happy either. Many times, Dad traveled out of town with his girlfriend, leaving me home alone. It was during those years I learned to hate holidays, especially Christmas. He decided to spend Christmas with his girlfriend's family the year I decided never to celebrate again. I woke up on Christmas morning to an empty house, a small tree on the coffee table holding a card and a small gift. It felt like a lame gesture that left me feeling unloved and abandoned again. I couldn't wait to turn 18 and move out to have my own life far beyond the crappy life I was living. Moving out and becoming an adult was all I could fantasize about. I had a great GPA, so sovereignty wasn't too far away. During the final months of my junior year in high school, I realized I only needed a few credits to graduate. All my friends were in the class of 84, but I had an entire school year ahead of me, alone. The school principal had me write an essay on why I should be allowed to graduate early. I didn't want to get stuck in school for another year. I didn't want to have to take needless electives either, so I wrote the essay. On my 18th birthday, I had enough credits to get my diploma. School lit out for winter break, and without any celebration, I graduated. 
While I had to wait until June of 1985 to get my official diploma, I was free. Immediately, I packed my little green Volkswagen Bug with a plan to temporarily move to my mom's house in Laguna Niguel, California until I got a job. I hadn't thought it through, other than just getting back to the sun in California. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. Want some free resources? Well, join my Facebook community, a group of heart-centered, ambitious individuals just like you. Just go and visit the link in the description, or you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups, the gold factor. And remember, if you're enjoying the book so far, follow the podcast, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it as we're launching and growing the podcast and share it on social media. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. Have a great day. Be blessed and be a blessing.